This past week, I had the opportunity to meet with a guy who is here from the East Coast. He was out for a week or so and is going to be moving out here, taking up employment out here, and was looking uh, to find a place to live in the Upland area. Long story, but he got a hold of my name from the Internet and called me up. It turns out that he's from Massachusetts and is a Red Sox fan, and so um, <laughs> so I had an immediate liking to him. And uh, it was really kind of, actually it was really amazing in the providence of God how many things in our lives had intersected. He's going to be starting out at the Master's Seminary in September. He's a, a pilot in the Air Force and will be stationed out at March Air Force Base. So they're looking to live in their upland area. But it was really neat to just spend some time talking with him. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's difficult to, to relocate, to move. And it's particularly traumatic to move across country. To come from the East Coast to the West Coast is quite a move. And I can remember back in 1991 when our family moved here to Southern California. And I can tell you that we are exceedingly happy here in Southern California and there is no place we would rather be. And I can also tell you that in 1991, this was the last place that we wanted to move. My wife and I were convinced that Southern California had only two things to offer, fruit and nuts. And we weren't really very sure about that whole enterprise of moving here. But God in his providence wanted us here and we are delighted to be here. You know, when you move into a new area, it's a good idea to check some things out before you settle in and, and take up residence. One of the, one of the things that they tell you to, to do when you're looking to move into a new area is to check with local law enforcement and to get the crime statistics for the area that you're contemplating to move into and see, you know, what is it really like to live in that area? So in light of this morning's topic, I decided to go online and check out some crime statistics. And in particular, the murder rate per capita for the best and worst cities in the United States population 250,000 or above. The statistics I found were as of the year 2010, and it was really quite eye-opening. The best and the worst cities. This is the murder rate per 100,000 in cities in the United States, population 250,000 above. You look on the left-hand column, you see that the worst city in terms of murder is New Orleans with 49.1 murders per 100,000. And then you walk down the list and in some sense you find what I suppose you would say is the usual suspects on that left-hand side. If you flip over to the right-hand side and you look at what is considered the best cities in the United States to live in in terms of murder rate, meaning the lowest murder rates, I would think you would have to be stunned, I was, at the number one city in America, El Paso, Texas. <laughs> Safest city tied, I guess you would say, with Lincoln, Nebraska. El Paso, Texas and Lincoln, Nebraska, 0.8 murders per 100,000. A very safe city, evidently, to live in. 
You can follow down the list. You'll notice there are a number of cities in Southern California that fall in the list. And I was surprised as well, I think, by Riverside, California. <laughs> I think Riverside must have a bad rap, to be honest. I mean, you look at that, 3.0 per 100,000 compared to New Orleans. It's really staggering. Really staggering. It's clear that some cities have substantially lower murder rates than others. But this morning, what we are going to see from the word of God that is that no place is truly safe. No place is truly safe. And the reason that's true is because we all carry within our hearts the seeds of murder. And that is a very sobering truth to come face to face with. Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21 this morning. I've entitled this morning's message, The Heart of Murder. The Heart of Murder. Now you will remember from a few weeks ago that we are in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Hopefully you'll remember that much. You'll also remember, I hope, that Jesus is the Messiah, right? This is good. Jesus is the Messiah, and the Messiah has come to redeem his people and establish his kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount represents one of the most extensive portions in the New Testament of the preaching of Jesus, that Messiah. And as he has come to establish his kingdom to redeem his people, he has some very important things to say. He tells us here in Matthew 5 and beginning in verse 17 that the purpose of his coming was not to abolish the scriptures, the word of God, called here the law and the prophets, but rather to fulfill them by reiterating their moral demands for an internal righteousness in preparation for that coming kingdom. You pick that up in verse 19. Jesus is giving the people of his day an ethic by which they are to live while they wait for him to establish his kingdom. We are still waiting for him to establish his kingdom. And thus that ethic has something to say to us as well. It is an ethic that pierces through all external forms of righteousness and cuts to the heart of the issue. It's a righteousness that Jesus says in verse 20 surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees were the epitome of righteousness at that time. They would put everyone to shame in terms of an external standard of righteous behavior. Compliance and conformity to the law of God. They were scrupulous in their, in their attention to the details of the Mosaic law. 
And yet Jesus says, unless you can do better than that, unless you have something greater than that, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The end of verse 20. That's incredible. It's an amazing statement. What he's saying here is that something has to happen. There has to be a a transformation that happens within the human heart that gets below the surface. And that transformation is only possible by a complete surrender and reliance upon the grace of God. If you think it's about what you can do for God, forget it. Forget it. You will never exceed the external forms of righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees of the first century. You have a prayer. But Jesus said, that's not enough. It would never make it anyway. You need something deeper, something more profound. This righteousness cannot be found in external law-keeping. It is only a righteousness that can be granted by God Himself. Now, Jesus is going to begin here in verse 21 to set up a series of contrasts. He's going to fill out that statement in verse 20 about having to have something greater than, something that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees. And, and he will do that through a series of contrasts. And in the rest of chapter 5 is given over to six of them. Six particular contrasts. He is going to reject the Pharisaical interpretation of the Mosaic law. And he's going to set up what is the true intent of that law. And he will use the basic formula, you have heard it said, but I say to you, to draw these contrasts. He begins with a contrast with the topic of murder. He proceeds from murder to deal with adultery. He goes from adultery to deal with divorce. He goes from divorce to deal with personal oaths. He goes from personal oaths to dealing with personal retaliation. And he goes from personal retaliation to dealing with what are the requirements for love. So he covers a number of the commandments in this process. His first contrast, the one we have before us this morning, is with regard to the sin of murder. With regard to the sin of murder. What is murder? Simply put, murder is the unlawful taking of a human life. It is the unlawful taking of a human life. And humanity has a very long and sordid history with this sin. God made Adam and Eve in his own image. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. As the image bearers of God, no one but God has the right to end their life. Furthermore, God delegated to Adam and Eve the ability to conceive children and that those children would also bear the image of God. Genesis 5. Verses 1 and 3. 
When a man and a woman come together in a sexual union that produces a child, they bring into existence an immortal soul that bears the image of God. But those first image bearers corrupted their good gift, didn't they? It wasn't long before Adam rebelled against God and ate of the fruit from the tree of which he was forbidden to eat. Nor was it long after that before his son Cain rose up and murdered his own brother. And over the succeeding generations, human violence and corruption continued to grow and to pile up until God looked upon the earth and he said, I must wash it clean. And in a great global flood, he scrubbed the planet clean, preserving Noah and his three sons and wives, that the human race would begin again. Following that flood, God spoke directly to Noah and instituted capital punishment as a consequence of the sin of taking a human life unlawfully. Genesis 9 and verse 6. Centuries later, God appeared to the nation of Israel, his chosen people, and he codified that prohibition against the unlawful taking of a human life in one of his Ten Commandments, the Sixth Commandment, to be precise. Thou shalt not murder. The Sixth Commandment. Exodus 20 and verse 13. Now in Jesus' day, just like in our day, the prevailing opinion among people is that murder is purely an external act. Something that you do to another person. And if you have not done that, then you are obedient to the Sixth Commandment. That's the prevailing opinion. It was then, it is now. Well, at least I'm not a murderer. Well, we're going to find out this morning that that's not how Jesus sees it. In fact, what we're going to find out this morning is that's not how the law saw it as it was originally given because it's not how God sees it. Jesus is going to contrast his teaching on true righteousness, that is the, the original intent of the law and its implications, with what was at that time, and I would suggest to you today, remains the prevailing opinion of people, and that is murder is something I do as a physical act, something I do externally, and if I didn't do that, I'm good. Check that one off. And Jesus is going to say, not a chance. In fact, what's going to happen is Jesus is going to make three shocking statements for us designed to destroy our self-confidence and drive us to him to receive forgiveness and grace that are necessary to live with true righteousness. In fact, as Jesus goes through verses 21 and following, he's going to make a number of incredibly shocking statements. They are designed to cause people to sit up and take notice. He draws the boundaries sharply. 
He makes the contrast very black and white. He's not dealing in shades of gray. He's sharpening the edges. And he's going to do that for us this morning. Let me read the text for you, beginning in verse 21, Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are on the way with him so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Three shocking statements. The first in verses 21 and 22 is this. Murder occurs frequently. Murder occurs frequently. That is a shocking statement. Jesus said, you have heard that the ancients were told. The reference here to the ancients would be a a reference to those who had originally received the Mosaic law. They are the ancients. And it's notice that Jesus says that you have heard that they were told. This is a a reference to the fact that Jesus' audience here would have heard about the giving of the law at Sinai over and over and over again in the synagogues in which they have grown up. Meaning this is very, very familiar territory to you. This is old hat. In particular, the reference that they have heard of Jesus Spells out, at least the initial part, you shall not commit murder. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Beyond that, you'll see in your Bible, and it says, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. That is not a direct citation. That is a, that is a combination of probably a number of passages that get across that basic idea. For example, in Exodus chapter 21 and verse 12, it is written in the law, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. Furthermore, Deuteronomy chapter 16 and verse 18, where it says, you shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. These are just a few of the verses that no doubt combine to communicate this other thought. The strict prohibition against murder and the notion that whoever is a murderer will pay the penalty for it. They will come before the court, they will be judged to be guilty, and they will pay the penalty, which is they shall be put to death. Capital punishment. So essentially the reference here in verse 1 to the court 
which literally the word is judgment, is, is a reference, I believe, to the death penalty which the court would impose upon the convicted murderer. That's essentially what Jesus is saying. You have heard that from the ancient times, murderers come before the court, they are judged to be guilty, and they are put to death. They are executed. You've heard that. And you're probably thinking, safe. But I say to you, verse 22, but I say to you, wake up. This is not an issue of complacency. Wake up. But I say to you, against a strictly literal interpretation of these commandments, I have something else to say to you. That is, we need to get below the letter of the law. We need to get to the real issue that stands behind the law. To take merely a literal interpretation is to mask a whole bunch of evil that lies under the surface. And that is, if I, if I am, am apparently willing to do what God literally says, but I ignore the intent behind it, then there's a, a whole lot of room for me to mess around. There's a whole lot of evil I can get involved in. Jesus says, no way. There's a lot more here going on than simply the external act. It's the issue of the heart. And so Jesus is going to to set forth in a very authoritative way the true intention behind the law of God. He's going to do so in a shocking way. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Same construction. That's the exact same grammatical construction in verse 21. Everyone who is angry with his brother shall be found guilty and deserving of capital punishment. And beyond that, whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go to hell. It's incredible. In a very series of quick declarations, Jesus cuts through to the heart of the sin of murder. He gets down below the surface. What he says is that anger is subject to the same penalty as the act of murder itself. He's equating the two of them. This word anger is the kind of of brooding, long-lived anger that just resides in the human heart. It is this anger that lies as the motive behind the deed. Furthermore, Jesus goes on here in verse 22 to to reveal the attitudes that lie behind murder. And it is the attitude of contempt. The attitude of contempt. And, And that contempt reveals itself through abusive speech. So it's the motive of anger. It is the attitude of contempt that Jesus wants to deal with. Verse 22, raka is the word translated in the updated New American Standard as you good for nothing. I wish they hadn't done that. I wish they'd have left it as raka. Raka is a word that is 
difficult to translate. In fact, almost untranslatable. We're not sure exactly where the word comes from. It's possible that it comes from an Aramaic word that has the idea of of empty-headed or stupid. But as one commentator says, the word raka, is, it's almost as much about the tone as it is about the meaning of the word. That's important. It's the, it's the tone in which the word is used. As I say, it's been rendered in different English versions, different ways, empty-headed, here good for nothing, sometimes stupid. And it's the way the word is said that reveals the attitude behind it. The other word here, translated you fool, moros in the Greek, we get the English word moron. This particular word probably deals with a person's moral character. You know, the fool said in his heart, there is no God, right? And so some commentators, they they come to this passage here and they look at verse 22 and and what they see is an an increasing severity of judgment. You know, if you're angry, you're guilty before the local court. If If you use the word raka, you know, you're going to go before the Sanhedrin, before the Supreme Court. And if you use the word fool, you're going to go to hell. But I don't think that's what Jesus is communicating. I don't think he's he's splitting hairs this way. Saying, well, it's okay, you know, it's okay. You can, you can say raka, but don't say moras. You know, you go to hell if you say that word. I don't think that's what he's after at all. I think he's just piling it up to communicate one idea. One idea. In fact, I think what he's doing is, is he is calling out his contemporaries on that which was common in society at that time. These are common insults that were used in his day. A common, a common utterance. They're not going to take you to the Supreme Court for using a particular word. That's not the idea. In fact, just the opposite. I, I think what he is after is the attitude that underlies the use of this kind of insulting speech, abusive language. It is the contempt that lies in a person's heart that would cause their lips to utter these kinds of words. You moron. You idiot. What's wrong with you? You stupid. We have our own insults we use today. What Jesus is saying here, we don't want to miss this, is that the, the attitude that lies underneath our speech is every bit as serious as the outward act of murder itself. It's like snuffing out a man's life. And the reason that this is so serious is is because fellow human beings are image bearers of God. The divine stamp has been put upon them. And to treat God's image bearer with contempt is to treat God with contempt. And God says that is deadly serious business. Deadly serious. 
Jesus is saying here that the sixth commandment, the the prohibition against murder includes an implicit prohibition against the motive behind murder, which is anger, and the attitude behind murder, which is contempt that shows itself in an abusive speech. He's offering a warning. The warning is against that soul-damning idea that we can tolerate wicked thoughts as long as we do not act upon them. And that is a soul-damning idea. That it doesn't matter what you think, it only matters what you do. And Jesus says, you could not be more wrong. You could not be more wrong. Now, because this issue is serious, Jesus is going to offer a couple of illustrations. That's basically verses 23 and following are just a series of two illustrations to drive home this big idea. The two illustrations deal with with how his disciples are to act when anger and abuse show their ugly heads. And they are shocking as well. Each of the illustrations is shocking. The principle is shocking and the illustrations of the principle and how we're to deal with it are shocking. This whole thing just turns it upside down. That takes us to the second shocking statement in verses 23 and 24. The statement is this. Your brother's problem is your top priority. Your brother's problem is your top priority. Therefore, verse 23, you see that? Therefore. When we see the word therefore, we ask ourselves, why is it therefore? It is a summary kind of word. It is a word that is drawing a conclusion based upon a teaching that has just preceded it. Therefore, in light of the reality that it is not just the external act of murder that God is concerned with. In fact, it is the the attitudes that lie underneath it all. It is the motives that lie underneath it all. Therefore, in light of that, it matters how you behave. It's also interesting here that in verse 23, Jesus changes his form of address. What I mean by that is that that he goes from using a second person plural, which is you all, or as someone else said, all y'all, or something like that, that they use down south. The idea of everybody to a second person singular, which is you, which is you, which is you. And he says, therefore, if you are offering your presenting your offering at the altar. You're supposed to do something. This is not a teaching for the person sitting next to you in the pew this morning. This is a teaching for you. A very personal application of this teaching. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Okay, here's the picture. 
The picture is of a worshiper who has come into the temple and is in the very act of presenting his offering, a lamb perhaps, that he has brought with him to be, to be offered as a gift, a free will offering. And the sacrifice is there, and he is bringing it as an act of obedience to God's law. There is no hint of hypocrisy on this man's part at all. He is offering legitimately an act of worship to God. Furthermore, there is nothing here in the text that indicates that he is angry with anybody himself. And that's what makes this really shocking, actually quite startling. It's because he's not angry, someone else is. And someone else is angry with him. The angry person is not even there. It's not that you walk in, you know, with your sacrifice and the person walking in next to you is mad at you. And so, you know, before you offer your sacrifice, you ought to deal with that. It's way more shocking than that. Jesus preached this Sermon on the Mount while in Galilee. Preaching to the Galileans. Now, we know the distance from from Galilee to the temple in Jerusalem is about 80 miles and would take about a week to make that journey. What Jesus is saying, in effect, is having traveled 80 miles or let's put it in terms that we could understand a week, having gone on a week long journey to come present your worship before God. And there, in the very act when you're about to give your worship to God, you remember that someone back home is angry with you. Leave your worship there. Leave the sacrifice there. Turn around, travel a week back home. Be reconciled to that person and take another week's journey back and pick up where you left off. That's shocking. That is shocking. This issue is so important, so significant that you should interrupt that which you are, you are in the very act of doing, that which everyone would agree is a good and, and wonderful thing to do, right? To worship the living God. Something that you want to do out of your heart because you love him. And he's saying, stop. Do whatever it takes to be reconciled. Do whatever it takes. How often have you heard people say in response to learning that someone is angry with them, that's their problem? Hmm? You ever heard anybody use that terminology? Well, that's their problem. Have you ever said it yourself? Have you ever thought it? Well, that's their problem. They're mad at me. It's their problem. Beloved, it's our problem. It's our problem. Jesus says that anger is so destructive, so deadly, so soul damaging, so eternally damning that not only must we run from it, but we must be not be the cause of it in others. It's not just that we've got to deal with our own anger. We are responsible to deal with the anger of others. And we need to take whatever action is necessary to do that. 
That is a shocking statement. Essentially, it answers the question raised by the very first murderer. Am I my brother's keeper? Do you remember he asked that question? What's the answer to that question? Yes, you are. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. And if you know your brother has something against you, you need to do what it takes. It's your top priority to go and to deal with it. That's shocking. But it doesn't end there. There's another illustration and a third shocking statement. And it's this. Conflict must be diffused quickly. Conflict must be diffused quickly. Verses 25 and 26. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law. Well, you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly pay attention here. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Now, this is a parable. But it communicates an incredibly important truth. Jesus is applying the the truth about the sixth commandment here. The underlying issue is still that about anger and contempt. And he has just applied it in verses 23 and 24 to, to relationships within the community of believers, right? Your brother has something against you. He is now going to apply the truth of it outside the community of believers, as it were. And to what he calls here, your opponent at law. Your opponent at law. Now, the picture here is about two individuals who are having a dispute. And this dispute has become so contentious that they have resorted to the courts to sort it out. Now, we ought to be able to identify with that. We're going to sue you. Oh, yeah, well, I'm going to countersue you. Well, I'm going to countersue your countersuits. Right? In the Old West, you'd hire a gunslinger. Today, we hire an attorney. It's the same idea, by the way. The picture here is that the day that they are to appear in court has arrived. And on their way to to court before the local judge, they they find themselves walking together, as it were, up to the courtroom. Now, typical legal advice would be that you would ignore the person that you are in the lawsuit with. You definitely don't strike up conversations with them. And you certainly don't say anything that might be able to be used against you in the lawsuit that you're about to go before the judge with. And Jesus says, do just the opposite. Do just the opposite. He says you should use the opportunity, verse 25, to make friends. Do you see that expression? To make friends. Now, in light of the context here, it's got to mean the idea of humbling yourself. 
Make friends with this person. Humble yourself before your adversary, before your opponent at law, before the person who is suing you. Humble yourself before him. Admit your guilt to him. Work out a deal to pay him what will satisfy him as your creditor and thereby eliminate the need to go to court. And if you fail to do that, you fail to seize the opportunity to diffuse the conflict. It will result in your confinement to debtor's prison where you will remain until you have paid every last cent. That is shocking. That is absolutely shocking. Is Jesus giving legal advice? What is he communicating? Why does he do this? Because he's striking to the heart of the underlying issues. He's saying, listen, anger, contempt. This is no small matter. This is deadly serious stuff. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you have a righteousness that that does not delay in admitting your fault, in diffusing the conflict, in eliminating the motivation for the other person to succumb to the sin of murderous rage, then you will not enter the kingdom of God. Unless you're that kind of a person. Earlier, we called it a peacemaker. You remember? Blessed are the peacemakers. Amazing. Proverbs 15 and verse 1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Beloved, this passage just slaps us in the face. Causes us to sit up and take notice. You feel when you read this, well, what about my rights? Right? I mean, well, you know, the stuff they did to me. Jesus, I don't want to talk about that stuff. I want to talk about what's going on in your heart. But I'm basically a good person. See, I've never murdered anybody. And Jesus would say, really? Really? How you treat the law of God with such disdain. How you take things as no weight to them at all, right? I'm a good person. Jesus says, no, you're a murderer. You have murdered someone. Undoubtedly, you're a mass murderer. Listen, if you dismiss a person with contempt made in the image of God, you blow them off with an insulting word. 
What it means is that you have so debased them in your heart that at that moment in time, it is only the grace of God that restrains you from pulling out a gun and blowing them away like so much garbage. That kind of murder lies in my heart and it lies in yours. And that's scary. That is scary stuff. Where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? There's only one place you can go from here. Have mercy on me, O God. Not because of anything that that lies in me that's of value. I have nothing to offer you. Oh God, at the depth of my being, I'm a murderer. How can I be more foul than that? But you love me. You have sent your son to die in my place. He, He died the death of a criminal because I'm a criminal. Your wrath against my sin poured out on him. By his stripes, I am healed. It can only take us one place. It can only take us to the cross of Christ. Jesus shatters any pretense, any good feeling, any sense of well-being or accomplishment. Any pride in our own humanity. He dashes it. Finishes this chapter, by the way. Verse 48. Therefore. Conclusion to all six contrasts. Therefore, you are to be perfect. As your heavenly father is perfect. But I'm not. God says, I know. But I'm not going to negotiate the law just for your benefit. I'm not going to lower the standard just for you. The standard remains. And you fail. But in my mercy and in my grace, I'm going to send the perfect one who will stand in for you. That by my grace, through faith in that good gift, the Lord Jesus Christ, his perfection becomes yours. You are welcome into my kingdom. Does this mean that we can stop trying in all this area, by the way? Oh, yeah, you know, I'm kind of a murderer in my heart. Next. No, I don't think so. There is the theological reality of it, to be sure, and that Christ is your only hope. But, beloved, there is still an ethic here that we are to strive for. The Scriptures are very, very clear about putting off anger. In fact, Paul says over in Ephesians, right? To let not the sun go down on your what? Anger, because if you do, you give the devil opportunity. 
John 8, 44, the devil is a murderer and has been from the beginning. We are to put off anger. We are to forgive as we have been forgiven in Christ. We are to allow the Spirit of God to wash our hearts and so that contempt doesn't well up within us. And when it does, we need to confess it and we need to repent of it. And we need to be careful how we talk to people. Let the speech be wholesome and edifying. That which builds up. May God grant us the grace we need. Let's pray. Our Father, to take serious contemplation of the truths here is shocking. It leaves us naked and undone before you. It strips us of all pretense, all pride, all sense of accomplishment, all those things that we would boast in that are nothing but rubbish, Paul says. It leaves us naked and helpless and dependent upon Christ. And our Father, we would not desire to be any other place because that is the place of blessing. In your divine economy, our Father, we go down to go up. That we see ourselves as we really are and then we repent and turn to Christ. We flee to his cross and we get wrapped in his robe of righteousness and, and we become your beloved children. And as your beloved children, we now have a new ethic to live by. We have the spirit of the living God within our hearts to empower and enable, to give us desire. And yet, our Father, we fall short all the time. And we hurry back to our only hope, our only source, Christ himself. Back again to the cross. Oh, Lord, back again to the cross. Where we find forgiveness in time of need. Now the God of peace. Who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. Through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus, our Lord. Equip you in every good thing to do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you, beloved.